0: Chapter 15, verse 1. Some time later, Absalom managed to acquire a chariot and horses as well as 50 men to serve as a royal guard. Now Absalom used to get up early and stand beside the road and let of the city gate. What's the narrator telling you? He's got a chariot. Power. Power. Not only that, military. military. Bodyguard. You only do that if you're intending to become king. And knows that they run ahead of him. This is like the secret service agents running along the limousine of the president. That's the idea that's being communicated. The only time you ever see that is with people of power or people are going to take power. This is a blatant advertisement sign for I'm going to run for king. But the only way you become king in the ancient world is when the previous king appoints you that. But there's nothing about David appointing him. Which means this is like coup language. But not only that, theologically speaking, this is a total violation of the regulations for the Deuteronomy king of chapter 17 of Deuteronomy. He is collecting horses and chariots. And the narrator, once again, is not only showing you power, but he's also showing you this is not the guy to be king of God's people. The only time the narrator's ever said anything about Absalom, it's been lots of power, uncontrolled, and he shouldn't be king. Power shouldn't be king. Power shouldn't be king. That's what's constantly communicating. Because, remember, what is the purpose of the book of Samuel? The true kingship, true leadership, lies in submitting to the ultimate sovereignty of Yahweh. There's no submission to Yahweh's power here. This could potentially be the next king. That's scary. So he stands beside the city gate. Now remember in the time of peace, the city gate is where the judges sit and where they hear court cases. So he's acting as a judge. Whenever anyone came by who had complained to bring to the king for aberration, Absalom would call out to him and say, What city are you from? And the person would answer, I am your servant from one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom would then say to him, Look, your claims are legitimate and appreciate, and appropriate, but there is no representative of the king who will listen to you. That's not true. Absalom would then say, if only they would make me a judge of the land. That's another way of saying king. Then everyone who had a judicial complaint could come to me, and I would make sure he receives a just settlement. The city gate is where the judges sit. So that's like the court systems. You hear the complaint. If they can't handle something or you want to appeal to a higher court, then you go directly to the king. And that's like our version of the Supreme Court or moving up the judicial branch. And so he's basically standing at the gate and those people who are about ready to go to David, he says, oh, I can handle it. After all, I'm the king's son. Don't go up there, you won't get justice. But if I were king, I would give you just justice all the time. He's intentionally intercepting people on their way to David. And this is like watching your campaign commercials when they're like, Dwight, he cheated on taxes. And duh, duh, duh. But if you vote for me, I'm honest. <laughs> I'm so honest, I smear the other person all the time. That's what he's doing. And he's intercepting them. But it's even more than that. Verse 5, When someone approached to bow before him, Absalom would extend his hand and embrace him and kiss him. And Absalom acted this way towards everyone in Israel who came to the king for justice. And this way, Absalom won the loyalty of the citizens of Israel. So not only is he doing this politically, but he's also going out and meeting the people. And when people go down to bow down to him, he kind of lifts them up and says, No, 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 we're equals. And he's kissing babies and passing out suckers and slapping like hope and change stickers on everybody. And he's basically promising to make Israel great again. And this is what he's doing. Notice the irony here. In one sense, the whole point of the Deuteronomic regulations of the king was that ends with, so that the king may not be higher or more privileged than all of his fellow countrymen. That's exactly what Absalom is doing. He's presenting himself as a man of the people. I'm with you in it. We're all being cheated by him up there. But if you put me in the power, I'll make things great again. I'll fix everything, right? And then they begin to buy into it, and they begin to come to him, and they're coming to him over and over and over again because he's either bought into the party line and they're convinced that he's good at what he does, or he really truly is good at being a good judge. We're not told by the narrator. But meanwhile, he's riding around in a chariot with lots of money and a bunch of bodyguards. But nobody sees that because they're just wowed by the smooth talking. The narrator wants you to know that he is total violation of the Deuteronomic covenant or the Deuteronomic regulation for the king. But Absalom is trying to present an image to everybody that he is the Deuteronomic king. He's one of the people. This is deceptive. After four years... Absolence of the king. Some of the older, older manuscripts say 40 years. But that that's the better, more accurate translation is four years. There's no way it's been 40 years. (laughs) He'd be like he'd be 80 years old. It'd be too late. And David'd be dead, and Saul may be taking the throne by now. That math doesn't work. There are some manuscripts that say 40 but that it is by far the most rejected translation by pretty much all scholars. We don't know if it's been four years since he's been back or four years since David started talking to him. We don't know. So remember, he's been back for two years before David brought him in and kissed him on the cheek and sent him away. So is it four years after that? Or is it four years since he's come back from Gesher? So including the two years. Either way, this means that at least for two years, he's been kissing babies and passing out suckers and standing at the gates. And what has David done the entire time? Nothing. If your son is usurping your authority right outside your own city gates, now remember Jerusalem is no bigger than this block that we're on. He may be oblivious to what his kids are doing and what's going on in their lives, but he is not oblivious to what's going on politically in his kingdom. There's no way with all his little birdies and spies that he has no idea what's happening at his own city gates where all the judges are for two years. But not only does it involve politics, but it involves his own son. He goes to his dad, he says, Let me go and repay my vow that I made to the Yahweh that I was in Hebron. For I made this vow that when I was living in Geshur in Aram, if Yahweh really does allow me to return to Jerusalem, I will serve Yahweh. The king replied to him, Go in peace. So Absalom got up and went to Hebron. This is the first time that Absalom ever mentions the name Yahweh. He says, When I was in Geshur, I made a vow to Yahweh that if he brought me back alive and in peace, I would begin to worship him in Hebron. Now what's interesting is that Hebron has never been mentioned In this story so far, Absalom has no connection to Hebron. That's his birthplace, as in like he, well, that's not where he was born, but that's where he hung out like in the little years. And the only place he would really be worshiping God right now is in the tabernacle, which is in Jerusalem. He's not really technically allowed to go down and make worship or sacrifices in Hebron. That's not where the tabernacle is. He has no reason to go to Hebron in a religious kind of a sense. But there is a significance to Hebron in the bigger story of things. Hebron is the only other palace in Israel. Because Hebron is where David was king after he came back from Ziklag and Philistine territory. While Ishbosheth was king in the north, he was king in the south there in Hebron. And then when he became king over everything, he moved to Jerusalem. That's David's palace there's still probably power there and money there and guards there and the only significance to go to Hebron is political power and that's why Absalom's going there in fact the minute he gets there he's going to start telling everybody about how he's going to take the throne and David completely misses it David completely misses it or he's unwilling to think that that could ever happen so he doesn't pay attention to that verse 10 then Absalom sent spies throughout all of the tribes of Israel and said When you hear the sound of the horn you may assume that Absalom rules in Hebron. That's the real reason he's going there. He's basically turning his dad into the Ishbash of the north. He's going to become the new David in the south. And just like David was successful in the south and then taking everything, that's exactly what he's going to do. Remember, this is planned, premeditated. Now 200 men had gone with Absalom from Jerusalem, and since they were invited, they naively were unaware of what Absalom was planning. While he was offering sacrifices, Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gillanite, David's advisor to come from his city, and Gilan. And the conspiracy was gaining momentum, and the people were starting to side with Absalom. So for at least two years, maybe even four, He wins the favor of the people. He proves himself to be a good king, good and loyal. And then he gets the most trusted advisor of David. Later we're going to be told that Ahathophel always had great advice. And every time he ever gave advice, it always came out to be the way that it was supposed to. So he grabs and gets David's most trusted advisor to betray David inside with him. Meanwhile, tons of other people begin to join him, and he officially announces that he is going to become king. So we've got two kings now. It says that 200 people naively went down with him, not knowing exactly what Absalom was doing. You're like, what does that mean? Because he's publicly announced through the entire land that he's now king of Hebron, but they're naive and don't know what's going on. Chances are, from what we're going to find out later, is that they know that he's being king, they're backing him as king, but they might actually think this is a co regency. Listen, he is the king's son. And most of the time when the king's son starts becoming king before the father has died, it's because the father's making him a co regent. Because a very wise father Will allow his son to begin to reign before the father dies so that he can give his son experience and correct that bad move or bad decisions before he dies so that when he dies he knows his son is doing a good job it could be that he's announcing himself as king, and everybody is thinking co-regency and they might actually think that David is behind this now what would make them think that David brought him back put him in the palace For two years he's been campaigning as king, and has David done anything about it? No. So if the king doesn't say, no, 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 that's not true, if the king doesn't stop him for two years, and every two years he's campaigning, you're going to automatically assume that David's behind this. He announces himself as king, and David doesn't do anything about it. You're going to assume that he's behind it. And he's the son of the king, which is totally traditionally and logically possible in every single culture in the entire world. They probably think this is a co-regency and David's getting older and we're going to support the son. He's biologically next in line. That's great. That's awesome. But they don't realize that this is really about a coup. David's allowed all this to happen because he's been passive and apathetic the entire time. Verse 13, Then a messenger came to David and reported, The men of Israel, loyal to Absalom, so David said to all the servants who were with him in Jerusalem, "Come on, let's escape, otherwise no one will be delivered from Absalom. Go immediately or else he will quickly overtake us and bring disaster on us and kill the city's residents with the sword." The king's servant replied to the king, "We will do whatever our Lord the King decides." When David immediately finds out about this, David immediately sees it for what it really is, and he's so afraid of it that he runs into hiding. That says something about how much power Absalom has gained. That the most powerful king that Israel has ever seen. A man who's had power longer than Absalom. He has more experience than Absalom. Emilius told that he is an, Absalom has announced himself king in Hebron. And David's first reaction is to run and hide. To take his bodyguard with him, all of his wives, his family, everything. Which means Absalom's gained such a movement. And David knows it. Which means David's been aware the entire time. But he hasn't had it in him to stop it. Now, if this was some Jimmy Joe Jew down the street who was doing this, he would have cut his head off in a heartbeat. We saw that at the beginning. But with his own son, he just ignores, ignores ignores Because he can't bring himself to actually discipline his son and correct him and rebuke him. And now he's on the run. Now notice, this is the second time that this word has appeared since chapter 12, or 11. The sword will come and destroy our house. That is what David said, when the sword devours one house and not another, and we don't know why. And Nathan says, the sword is coming to your house, David. And now we're being told that Absalom is the sword, and he's coming. And the narrator is saying that to remind you that this is the judgment of God. But at the same time, the narrative is letting you know this is the patheticness of David as a father. Verse 16. So the king and all the members of his royal court set out on foot, though the king left behind ten concubines to attend to the palace, ten wives. The king and all the people set on the foot, pausing at a spot some distance away. And all of his servants were leaving with him. And along with all the Carathites, the Palathites, and all the Gittites, some 600 men who had come on foot from Gath, they were leaving with the king. That's a very powerful force that Absalom has Of 600 experienced warriors are running away. This is the way he's going to do. Jerusalem, remember, is. On the eastern side of Israel. Jerusalem is on top of a hill. And what he's going to do is, he's on top of the hill. And if you go eastward, down the hill, you go into the Kidron Valley. You know the Kidron Valley because that's where the Garden of Gethsemane is going to end up being one day. And where Jesus is going to pray the night before his crucifixion. Once you go down the Kidron Valley, you go up the next hill, the Mount of Olives. You know the Mount of Olives because that's where Jesus sent him to heaven after his resurrection. So basically what David's going to do is go down into this valley and he's going to go up the Mount of Olives and then he's going to escape eastward out of the land for safety. Cross the Jordan River and go into the Gilead region where we talked about Gad, half of Manasseh, and Reuben are at. Meanwhile, he's fleeing eastward, which is bad and judgment out of the land, Absalom is going to be coming up from the south of Hebron and taking the city of Jerusalem simultaneously. And as David moves out, he's got all his guards with them, and he's got these Gittites. The Gittites are foreigners. They're foreigners. Now, they're foreigners who've decided to join the Abrahamic covenant, so they're people of faith, but they're foreigners. And notice what happens here. Then the king said to Ittai. The Gittite. Why should you come with us? Go back and stay with the new king. For you are a foreigner and an exile from your own country. It seems like you arrived just yesterday. Today should I make you wander around by going with us? I go where I must go. But as for you, go back and take your men with you. May my genuine, loyal love protect you. So, David says this the Carathites and the Pelethites, they've been with David for a long time. When Absalom will look at the Pelethites and the Carathites, he's going to see people loyal to David. He's going to want to attack them and massacre them like David. But the Gittites, they haven't appeared anywhere before. David says, it seems like just yesterday that you came. So, it seems that they've come more recently in David's reign. Which means they haven't really been with David for a long time to be seen connected to David. So there's a really good chance that Absalom will see them as not being loyal to David and willing to join him. So David basically says, we're going to go on the run. And there's a really good chance we're all going to die on the run. But you're relatively new to this political situation. And you don't really have any skin in the game. Why don't you just stay here and join the new king and live? That's his answer. Even though God made it very clear that there will be consequences on David's house, he also promised David that he will make a covenant with him and make him a king for a long time. And what David's showing right now here is, he thinks this is the end, which means he's not trusting God. But, verse 21, Ittai replied to the king, As surely as Yahweh lives, this is the first time that Yahweh has been mentioned since chapter 9. In a legitimate way. Absalom mentioned it, but that doesn't count. He was lying. And we know that. Yahweh lives as my lord, the king lives, wherever my lord, the king is, whether dead or alive, there I will be as well. So David said to Itai, Itai, come along then. So Itai, the Gittite, went along accompanied by all of his men and all the dependents who were with him. It is the foreigner who sees God's hand protecting David better than David does. Now we already saw Uriah the Hittite, the foreigner who was more moral than David. Now we see the foreigner, the Gittite, who sees the will of God and the hand of God and trusting in God more than David does. And this is going to be a new thing we're going to start seeing. We've kind of seen a little bit with Rahab and Tamar and Ruth. But you're seeing more and more and more and more where the foreigners are actually going to respond to God better than the actual people of God. And by the time we get to kings, it's going to be really dominant. And by the time we get to uh, Elijah and Elisha, that's going to be a huge emphasis. that the foreigners are actually going to want God, get God, and respond to God better than the chosen people of God do. And this is one of those other cases that his theology and his trust in Yahweh and seeing Yahweh behind the Davidic throne is way better than David's own perspective. So David allows him to stay. Verse 23, All the land was weeping loudly as all the people were leaving. As the king was crossing over the Kidron Valley, all the people were leaving on the road that leads to the desert. And Zadok and all the Levites were with him, and they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when they positioned the Ark of God, Abiathar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. So Zadok, the new priest, Abiathar, the old priest, and the Ark of the Covenant are all going with them. Then the king said to Zadok, take the Ark of God back to the city. If I find favor in Yahweh's sight, he will bring me back and enable me to see both it and its dwelling place again. However, if he should say, I do not take pleasure in you, then he will deal with me in the way that he considers appropriate. Now, it's very interesting that after Itai Itai responds in faith to Yahweh, all of a sudden, David is now using Yahweh language. Maybe there was a little conviction there. And so kind of see him moving, and he's moving eastward, and total distrust of God, not trusting him, not depending on him, walking away. And a foreigner comes up and says, God's with you. And, and wherever you are, I'm going to be, because God is with you. And as David keeps walking, he begins to think, oh, hey, hey. <laughs> maybe that was a reminder of the Davidic Covenant. Maybe it's a reminder of all the times that God was with him while he was running away from Saul, and now he's running away from his son, and, and things, are, and he's like, oh, this is kind of like that. And God was with me in all those years, and I didn't really trust him as much as I should have. And then after that, God has made a covenant with me. God has actually used it, AI, as a reminder of what David should be thinking theologically. But he's not completely there yet. So he says, you know what? I remember that God is not the box. I don't need the Ark of the Covenant to have God's safety. If God's will is to bring me back alive, then I'll come back alive. If his will is not, then I won't come back. And it doesn't matter whether they have an ark with me or not. This is huge. He hasn't talked like this since before chapter 10. It's been years since he's talked like this. But all of a sudden, everything's coming back. Remember, he abused power and killed a man and raped a woman, and he still abused it after that, and he didn't talk about Yahweh, and he hasn't gone to Yahweh, hasn't trusted him, and all of a sudden this foreigner comes out of the middle of nowhere and says a simple phrase, that God's with you, so wherever you are, I'm with you. And all of a sudden, the memories of what he learned with the Ark of the Covenant bringing Jerusalem comes back. All the memories of fleeing from Saul comes back. The David Covenant starts coming back. And his theology begins to grow again. His faith in Yahweh begins to grow again. And now he's not totally depressed. He's going to die. Now there's a chance maybe God will bring him back if it's his will. So we keep going. So he sends Zadok back. And he says in verse 27 to Zadok, the priest, Are you a seer? Go back to the city in peace. Your son Amaziah and Abiathar's son Jonathan may go with you and Abiathar. Look, I will be waiting in the fords of the desert until word from you reaches me. So Zadok and Abiathar took the Ark of God back to Jerusalem and remained there. So basically his command is go back to Jerusalem and you're going to be my CIA. You're going to be my spy network. You can tell me everything that's going on. Now that doesn't say it clearly here, but when we get to the next paragraph or a couple paragraphs later, he's going to make it very clear that Zadok and the priesthood are his spy network. He's leaving his spy network behind. He didn't do that originally, which means now he's gaining more trust and more hope that he'll actually come back. Why have spies if you don't believe that you're going to succeed? As David was going up to the Mount of Olives, he was weeping as he went. His head was covered with his, his feet were bare, and all the people who were with him also had their foreheads covered. And they're weeping as they went. And now David had been told Ahathophel had sided with the conspirators who were with Absalom. And so David prayed, Make the advice of Ahathophel foolish, O Yahweh. This is the first time now that he's prayed to God. He's trusting God. Now he's not just saying it, now he's going to God and praying to Him. And knows what's happening. He's being stripped of everything which could have led him to absolute defeatism and depression. But God has used AI to remind him of who he really is in God. And now he's just, his faith is growing with every step. And now he prays to God and says, God, I want to come back. And I trust you. Even though Ahapahel is the wisest man in all the kingdom, make it foolishness. You can do that. When David reached the summit where he had worshipped God, Hushai, the archite, met him with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And David said to them, If you leave with me, you will be a burden to me. But you will be able to counter the advice of Ahithophel if you go back to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king. Previously I was your father's servant, and now I will be your servant. Zadok and Abiathar the priest will be there with you everything you hear in the king's palace you must tell Zadok and Abiathar the priest and furthermore their two sons are with them and Zadok's two sons Amazi and Abiathar's son Jonathan you must send them to me with your information you hear so Hushai is another advisor but he says look if you go with me you're going to be a burden to us it's like Oh, wow, David, thank you for the compliment. It doesn't mean that Hushai doesn't have any skills. It means he doesn't have any running on the, on the run skills. But where you can really aid me is pretend that you're an advisor to Absalom. Absalom will believe you because my other advisor, Hathafal, has already betrayed me. So why not another? And you thwart his advice. You give him advice that will actually help me. And you tell me everything that's going on to Zadok. And then he'll tell his sons and they'll tell me. And now he has total confidence he's coming back. He started his journey by going down in the valley. And there he is depressed, defeated, and thought he was going to die. And he told everybody to leave him because he's going to die. And then as he begins to move up the Mount of Olives, his faith starts coming back. And then when he arrives at the top of the Mount of Olives where he worshipped God, that's when his faith is fully restored again. And the narrator is not only showing you a journey of dead faith to live faith, but he's also doing it geographically by putting him in the shadow of the valley of death and then moving him to the top of the hill where he previously worshipped God and he begins to worship God again. Now that doesn't mean geography will literally change your faith in God. It's a literary device. But that's what the narrator is showing you here. And after all these years... We've heard more about God in these three paragraphs than we have in the last five chapters. And why? Because David is losing everything. When was David at his strongest? When he was running away from Saul with nothing. When he took the throne, he became powerful and cocky and pushed God to the side and sinned. And now he's stripped of everything again and his faith is coming back. His absolute dependence upon God is coming back. And even though his circumstances have not changed at all, theologically in his faith in God, he's on top of the hill. So David's friend, Hushai, verse 37, arrived in the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem.